All right, I want to thank you guys for uh, letting me come and, uh, and talk to you a little bit today. Um, and I wanted to thank uh, your leadership for being uh, very open-minded and welcoming people. Um, usually, when you're doing missionary work, people just want you to come and do the slideshow. And we have a slideshow up here, but um, people just want you to come and talk about the ministry you're doing. And I've always really felt like in my calling, I'm supposed to minister to the people I'm in front of. If I'm in California, I should be ministering to the people in front of me. If I'm in Africa, I should be ministering to them. So I told them I'd really like to pray and see if God has puts anything on my heart to, to preach to the people in front of me, if that's okay. And they said, absolutely, that's a great idea. So uh, that's real generosity of spirit, and I like it. So thanks to you guys for that. I'll open us up in prayer today, and then we're going to talk about loving and serving the Lord. So lift up your hearts with me. Father, we're so um, grateful for the opportunity to spend some time in your presence this morning, uh, to humble our hearts before you, to open our eyes and ears uh, to you, to your voice speaking into our lives. And God, my prayer is that, uh, that as I've prayed for this congregation, as I've lifted them up to you in the last week, that the words that you've spoken to me, that the portions of scriptures that you've eliminated, and just the basic theme that you've given me would be uh, meaningful and helpful to them. God, that this would be food for us all to eat of, and that it would edify us and strengthen us for the weeks and months and, and for the year to come. This is the last Sunday before the new year. God, that it would be uh, a feast at your table today. And God, I pray that you would be with me to help Give it the way that you would desire it to be given, not in myself, uh, not in self-concern, but just in obedience to you. And that you would have a personal and loving conversation with every heart in this room to highlight those things which are relevant to them, to push aside the things that aren't, and to keep us from distraction, God. And we pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, guys. I'm going to start us out with a story. It's a true story. It's not about me. This is a story that my grandfather used to tell me all the time when I was a kid. He used to tell it to everybody. It was like his favorite story. He uh, actually went to jail for robbing a bank when he was a younger man, my grandfather did. He got saved in jail, though. He came to the Lord, turned his life around, and he was just sort of a natural-born evangelist from that day on. He would just, like, grab people. Eventually, he got a platform, and he would have a ministry and be able to speak to people on a bigger scale, but he was always grabbing people and talking to them about Jesus. He's retired now, but he still does that. <clears throat> he used to tell this story about this widow that lived out in the surrounding countryside by the city of Rio de Janeiro in South America. And she was a widow. She had a young daughter, 15, 16-year range, if I'm remembering correctly. And... Uh, they lived out there on the farm. It was a good life. It was a tough life. But the daughter dreamed of something better for herself. She wanted to be a movie star. She wanted to be a singer. She wanted to be someone great. And so she dreamed about, oh, if I could just get to the big city, you know, people would recognize how awesome I am. I would get out there and my, make my dreams come true. And her mom, you know, tried to add some realism to that, saying, you know, that's a difficult path to go on. Not a lot of people make it. And one day, the mom comes home, and her daughter's gone. And so was all the money. She took it, wrote a see-you-later-mom letter, and ran off to the big city. And her mom's terrified. 
Because this is a third world country. It's a rough city. She knows that money's not going to last very long, that her daughter has no job experience, and she knows what kind of life that leads to out there and what kind of situations a young girl can get into in that area. So as soon as she can get the money together, she hops on a bus and she goes to the city and she looks for her. But this is a city of millions and millions of people. Even 30 years ago, it was a huge city. And back then, it was before Facebook. It was before, really, the internet. So, I mean, there was no way that she was going to find this girl. And she's realizing, I'm not going to be able to find my daughter. I got to get back to the farm or we're going to lose it. What do I do? And so she struck upon this idea. She bought a ticket home and she took all the rest of her money and she changed it out for change, for coins. And she went to one of those old school photo booths and she sat in it and she pumped in coin after coin and took a hundred pictures of just her own face, little wallet sized pictures that those booths produce. And she just took one picture after another after another until she had a whole stack of them, ran out of money. And she wrote a little message on the back of each one and then she went out to the red light district and the brothels and the slums and the taverns and the drug dens and she posted that picture everywhere she could think of. Bulletin boards, telephone poles, light posts, anywhere she could think to put it, she stuck it there until she ran out of pictures and then she got on a bus and she went home hoping and praying that she would see her daughter again but not really knowing whether it would happen. As it goes, about Two months later, if I'm remembering the story correctly, her daughter stumbles out of a brothel. She's intoxicated. She's been used. She feels horrible about herself. She has this layer of shame on top of her. She would do anything to go back in time and just stay home. But she doesn't feel like she could go back. She doesn't feel like she could ever look her mother in the eye again after the things that she's done and been through in the last few months. And as she's sort of stumbling out of this out of this horrible place, she ends up leaning against a telephone pole. And when she looks up, there's her mom looking her right in the eye. And she looks at this picture and she can't really comprehend how this picture got here, what's going on. She takes it down, she looks at it. And there's a part of her that just aches in that moment to go home. And there's another part that rises up like a voice inside of her and says, I've ruined that, I can never go back. And then for some reason, she turns the picture over And there's a message written on it in her mother's handwriting. And the message written in there, just a couple lines. And what her mother has written is, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I still love you. It's time to come home. And with that, she was able to go and get on a bus and drive home and face her mother And her life was restored. Things turned around. My grandfather used to tell that story. And like I said, he was a gifted evangelist. When he would say those lines, it was almost like God was speaking through him in the moment. You could just feel it. God was making his plea through a person. Reaching out to people and saying, your past doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter the things that you've done. God still loves you and he wants you back. He doesn't want to leave you where you're at. But he'll meet you right where you're at. And he'll lead you out of that. It's an amazing thing. To me, where it really hit me, because my calling is different than my grandfather. I'm not really an evangelist. 
My heart's more for the church. My heart's more for helping churches along in areas. And we went out to Africa to try to help people who are building a, a church for the first time. And there were sin issues and a whole bunch of things that were going on in that church just because they had never been exposed to things before. And they all of a sudden were, came out of the jungle and now they're exposed to alcohol and drugs for the first time. Thing, domestic violence explodes for the first time. They have no way of handling it. So that's where my heart is. That's where my calling is at. So when I look at that story, the thing that hits me the most is to me, it's a picture of what the church is supposed to be. Um, the world is that young girl that's wandered off and doesn't think she can come back to God. She's a prodigal son that said, oh, I can go and do better without God. I just need a little freedom to make my dreams come true. But then once she gets out there, her life's ruined. And she thinks, oh, if I could just go back, just like the prodigal son, if I could just go back to my father's house, but I'm not worthy. I'm, I, there's a shame that rises up when we think of all the things we've done, all the people we've hurt, all the times we've been selfish. And what the church is supposed to be is we're supposed to be the picture that Jesus left, his witnesses that he left, a picture of his face shining out where two or three are gathered in his name, shining out, reminding people of God. And that moment's almost startling when we see it. But then comes the message, that voice that we're supposed to be projecting out, speaking in God's stead to his people and calling people home. Telling them, you don't have to live like this. God has made a way for you to come back. You might feel like you are too tied up in your sins, but God can set you free. He can get you out. The thing that, um, I don't know if shocks, shocks me is the right word, but it's, it's one of the things that I consistently bump into in ministry is just the realization how quickly we get distracted from that as a church. Um, even like missionaries, they've gone, they've sold all their possessions and they've given their life away to God and they go out on the mission field and, and they're doing this thing and their, their whole existence is kind of focused on planting a church. And yet still... The church can so easily get distracted from that one thing, that one idea that we're here to love and serve the Lord. We are here to be that picture to other people. And we are here to invite people into the mercy of God and into a new chance at life, into a chance to start all over again. The thing that trips me out, kind of shocks me about it, is you think like, okay, if the enemy's at work, if he's distracting us from that calling, my mind goes to like something that looks bad, right? Something some sort of a cult or some sort of demonic things going on to pull people off of it. But my, what I've discovered is that's not the case usually. What usually distracts us from the heart of the gospel message and from the heart of what we're supposed to be doing as a church is church. That's what sucks us into, is what I call being churchy. And what I mean by that is what the church is supposed to be, is it's supposed to be a group of people who love and serve the Lord no matter what. And we're united by that. We don't have to make it happen. It's just we're united by that. We look into each other's eyes and go, we're on the same mission here. We've been saved and we have this hunger in ourselves to share it with other people. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to have a heart that says, I'm here to love and serve the Lord. But it's very easy to transfer into this place where we're here to love and serve ourselves socially. That's what Jesus spent a lot of time talking about when he came to Israel. And he was talking to them during his ministry years. Is he would go to the Pharisees and he would say, there's an appearance of godliness here, but there's none of the power. 
He says, you're doing all these things and you say it's for God, but it's really to impress each other. He says, you, you get up on the street corners and you say these loud flowery prayers, but you're not even really thinking about God. You're thinking about how good I look right now. You get up and preach and, and you do crazy things and jump around and throw your coat at people. And what is it about? It's, it's about the image you're projecting. There were things that Jesus pointed out about the Pharisees. Some of them, I think, are really potent. He would say, you tithe everything. You're meticulous in tithing. Down to even you're tithing your garden weeds. Like the mint. You've ever planted mint. It just grows everywhere. You can't stop it. He says, you're tithing even your mint. But you don't care where the tithe goes. That kind of hit a chord with me. Because I've, in the past, I've been that kind of guy. I throw the money on the plate. I feel good about it, but why do I feel good about it? I don't even know where it's going. Honestly, I never researched it, figured it out. But I feel like I've done something Christian, but maybe it's just more churchy than Christian. I've given money, but I don't know where it goes. He pointed out to the Jews that they had a thing about graven images. They were not, the, what the law says is don't worship graven images, but they said we shouldn't have any graven images at all. Let's just get rid of all of it. And so when they came to church to give money, they said, oh, these have graven images on these coins. So they said, let's get rid of that. We'll bring in money changers to change the money to money that doesn't have images on it. So in the process of trying to like follow these extra rules they made up and appear even more holy, they ended up turning their temple into a den of thieves that Jesus eventually drove all the, the money changers and people out of. It's a weird thing. Jesus said, they strain out the gnat, but they swallow the camel. But when we get down to it, it's very simple. What Jesus pointed to was the heart. He said, either when you gather together, you are focused on loving and serving me, or you start slipping away to this place where we're loving and serving ourselves socially. It's a crazy thing. Uh, it was really obvious to me in Africa when it happened because it was a different culture. Real easy when it's another culture. They go, wow, that's weird. Oh, that guy's like totally showboating or that guy's totally in this for himself and that's self-promotion. But then I came back home and I realized, no, this is a universal phenomenon. I think, I think it's a true thing anywhere. You go to any church in the world and I think you're going to find a spiritual side and a carnal side at work because we are all divided in that way. If we've come to the Lord, we have our old man, our flesh, that says, hmm, I would really like to love and serve myself today. You know, if I could, you know, increase my reputation, I mean, that's why, honestly, if I get real with myself, that's why I do a lot of the things I do on Facebook. I put a cool picture of myself up there. I write a comment. That's promotion. I'm promoting myself a little bit. And the problem is, is when it sneaks into something that should belong to God. And it still happens today. It does. How many times, sometimes I ask myself that question. I'll be, I'll be uh, I, go to, I go to a lot of churches and I'll be in a lot of places and I'll just kind of ask myself that question. Like, okay, we have a worship team up here. Is everybody in this worship team just so focused on loving and serving the Lord that it doesn't matter if other people are here? Or is there maybe one person up there that thinks, man, I'm sounding pretty good today. <laughs> I'm looking pretty good today. We went to a church once and they had this young girl and it wasn't her fault. She was really young and they, they put her up there and they'd have her sing and she had this incredible voice. But there was just something inside of me that said, this, whenever this girl gets up and sings, it's not about God anymore. It's about, wow. It's 
like, Amer- it's like watching an episode of, of America's Got Talent or something instead of church because it shifts into this place where it's just everybody's really proud that we've produced this young girl that can sing so good in this church. And that's not the point. The point is to enter into the presence of God. I've seen the same thing with young guys entering in the ministry and preaching. I've seen the same thing in business meetings. We had, I went to a church for a while and it was struggling but it had a really great prayer ministry. People would come for miles to come to this prayer room and get prayer, and God was really doing something there. But the pastor was getting close to retirement, and all of a sudden he comes up with this idea, we should merge this church with another church across town. And when you looked at it, it didn't really make sense because it would mean closing down the one thing that God was really doing in this church. But then slowly you began to understand, oh, he feels like he hasn't accomplished anything. He hasn't achieved all the goals that he wanted to fulfill in his life and in his ministry. And this is his one chance to do something big and sweeping and poetic. And I'm sure in his mind at that time he had the best of intentions, but you just had to dig at the surface a little bit and say, is this to love and serve God or is this to love and serve me? Now we're all called to fight that battle on a daily basis. Jesus didn't say, okay, here's the trick. This is how you kick out the flesh. Here's how you kick out your old self. And then you never have to worry about it again. No, Jesus said it's a battle. Every day, you're going to choose who you're going to be. How Paul said it in Galatians, you're either going to sow to the flesh and reap destruction, or you're going to sow to the spirit and reap eternal life. It's a daily choice to devote ourselves to God or to devote ourselves to ourselves, And I wake up automatically devoted to myself. I'm thinking, what do I want to eat? Can, can I convince somebody else to go and make coffee before I get out of bed? I'm just, that's where we are, right? That's where we start out. And it's a daily choice to die to ourselves and say, I'm not on this planet to take care of me. God takes care of me here. My job is to love others as he has loved me. That's my job. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think, I think all of you guys get that. All of you guys know that. But what I really felt like God was pointing at to me as I was praying for you guys is the reality that that happens on a social level. The same thing's true. There's no, Jesus didn't say, okay, here's the trick. Here's how you're going to go in your church and you can find all the flesh in your church and get rid of it. There's no way to do that. The flesh is always going to be in activity, just like the spirit is always going to be in activity in this place. The question is, is whether we are going to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Whether we're going to stand up when something fleshy starts happening and say, wait a minute, what's the purpose of this? That's what Jesus did. He said, know them by their fruit. He would look at something and say, where's the fruit in this? He would go up to the Pharisees and he'd say, you know, this looks good on the outside, but you peel back a couple layers and the fruit doesn't match. And that's something that I've realized. It's so easy. When you look at a, at a ministry and you're hearing someone talk, it's very easy if you're really paying attention to hear that note of love, that note of self-sacrifice in someone's voice or to hear the self-promotion. It's just, you can almost hear it. Now, Jesus didn't say leap out on that kind of initial tap on your conscience. He said, look at the fruit. But that's also true. You look at a self-promoting ministry, you look at something that's just starting to turn in the flesh a little bit, and you'll really quickly realize that fruit isn't really there. It's like, you know, have you ever been in that situation where you walk in the house and you go, oh, a banana, you pick it up and then it squeaks, it's a dog toy. It's not really a banana. Out of the corner of your eye, it looked like a banana. So I'm gonna put a banana on the chair, but no, 
It's just the dog's toy. It's that kind of obviousness. When we really start looking at things, we really start saying, where's the fruit of the kingdom in this? It becomes very clear. That's why the enemy spends all of his time just trying to get us focused on something else. Was it entertaining? Was it successful? Did a lot of people get excited about it at the time? He'll point us to anything and everything except looking at the fruit. Did it serve the kingdom? Did it produce the fruit of the Spirit in us? Did we mature more as Christians? Did new people become Christians? Did the witness go out? Sometimes people don't respond, but did the witness go out? Was there a moment where people had the the opportunity to choose and make a decision? Because that's what we're here for. If the chapel in the pines isn't doing that, then it's not serving the purpose for its existence. I'm not just talking about, you know, standing up to people, oh, you're fleshy in that, and oh, you're fleshy over here. That's not what Jesus really did. He was an outspoken guy, but he, he, was, a, he was open with it. There was a moment when Peter, who's like Jesus' best friend on the earth, basically. That's how I see it. You might disagree. But he was the guy who was, he's really passionate. He screwed up a lot, but it was really because he was trying. Usually when he screwed up, he just kind of overdid it. He was like going, you know, I'm going to jump out of this boat and walk on water. And Jesus is like, okay. And then he starts sinking because he's trying to run before he walked. But he was really a guy that was, he could really follow the spirit in, in a situation and sense what was going on. And when he was, was watching Jesus, Jesus said, who do you say I am? And he was the guy who said, you are Christ. You are the son of God. And what did Jesus say? I didn't tell you this. You did not know this by flesh and blood. You knew this from the spirit of my father. You knew this in your heart. You recognized it in your conscience, in those deep places within yourself. That's where you recognized it. But one paragraph later in the Gospels, Jesus starts talking about, yep, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to nail me to a cross, and they're going to kill me. This does not fit with Peter's plan for the ministry. He's thinking, we're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to crown you king. I'm going to be like a prince or something. We're going to get a palace. We're going to expand our king. We're going to just take over the Roman Empire or something. That's how it's going to go. I'm going to have a very comfortable life. And Jesus was like, actually, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead, but then I'm going to go to heaven so not too many people see me. And I'm going to send you out as witnesses. And you're going to be homeless. And people are going to try to beat you up all the time. And eventually, you're going to be martyred. But heaven will come eventually. It was not what... Peter wasn't prepared for that. And so he ends up resisting the Lord in that moment. He resists him. He says, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. We're not going to allow that to happen. And what Jesus says is he turns to him and he says, Peter, get out of my way. Get off my, see the old term in the, like King James is get behind me. But really what he's saying is get off my path. Stop standing in front of me. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. Why? Because you have in your mind the things of men instead of the things of God. This is the best disciple he has. This is a person he absolutely believes in. He has the greatest hope for. He knows he's going to do great things. But that didn't stop Jesus in the moment from saying, wait a minute, your head's not in the right place. You're resisting something you should be fighting for. I think it's the biggest lesson as I come back to the church in the States and look at, I think it's the biggest lesson we learn because what happens is when it comes to the moment of decision, the people who speak up, the people who are bold, unfortunately, are usually the people who are in their flesh. They're the people that don't have that, that don't pull back. The people who are kind of leaning into God, being a little bit more quiet and listening, they tend to get into this little Mr. Rogers kind of place where I shouldn't say anything. I might offend someone. It could be rude. 
And they think that being like Mr. Rogers is like being like Jesus. It's not. Jesus was brave. He was bold. He was outspoken. There were times when he would go on a big speech about the Pharisees right in front of him, and then one of his apostles would kind of sidle up next to him and be like, Jesus, do you know that you just really offended these people? Yes, Peter, he knew that he offended them. But he had to stand up in that moment. This was the body of God right here. This was the church. And they were making major decisions about what they were going to do in the future. And people were saying things and doing things that didn't line up with what he knew was right. And in that moment, he's like, this is the right thing to do. And he was bold enough. He was brave enough. He had the courage to stand up. And back then, it was, you know, worst thing that happens to me right now, if I say something that offends you guys, what, what's going to happen? Run me out of the church, throw, stone me with hymnals? What can you do? We don't live in a time like that. It could be rough socially, but that's about it. Back then, it was death. They could have killed him. They did kill him eventually for it. They nailed him to a cross. But Jesus was brave enough to say, I always stand up for the right thing. I always speak the truth. If, if I feel in my heart that we're going in the wrong direction, I'm going to stand up and say it. I'm going to use my voice. I'm going to say what needs to be said. And that's what I was feeling as I, as I got in prayer for you guys. Is I just felt like the Lord is saying that for this church, and I don't really know, I know you guys are looking for a pastor, I guess. I, I hear like maybe two sentences from these guys about things going on. Everything else is just like, oh, we love this church. And, but I don't really know what's going on in this church. But what I felt like the Lord was saying is you're entering into a season where you're going to make defining choices about this congregation. You're going to make defining choices. What you choose in the next few months might affect you for the next few decades. And what I feel like the Lord is saying is he's calling out to you to be aware that when it comes to those decisions, there is going to be push in the wrong direction. And that's not a condemnation to you guys as a church. It's not. That's true in any church. Anytime that it comes to a moment of decision, the enemy's not going to just sit there and twiddle his thumbs and say, I guess I'm going to let him start this ministry and reach out to people and change the world. No, he fights against it. And it's not always through some evil charlatan. Most of the time, it's through someone like Peter who is just having a bad day or just isn't mentally prepared for the sacrifice that that might cost. That's usually what it is. And what needs to happen in that moment is for people to stand up in love and say, I disagree. I don't think that's the direction God's taking us in. I think it's this one. It's up to us as a body to decide, but this is what I think. It can change things. I was in a ministry meeting. I had just joined a church, church and I was in a, a business meeting. They had everybody there and it was open mic. Anyone could talk. And they were proposing um, a certain thing. It doesn't really matter what they were proposing. But they were proposing something, and it just struck my conscience. I just thought, this is going to drive people away. This is not, there's no reason to do this this way. And I was just sitting there thinking that, but biting my tongue, because there was a little voice in the back of my head that said, you've been here for a month. Are you going to, like, start alienating people right off the bat? And the people, that obviously that guy who stood up and proposed it's really into it. Nobody's saying anything against it. I could get up there and say something, and it's just crickets, and then I, well, Better start looking for another church, you know? <laughs> I don't know. But I felt like I should do it. So I stood up. I didn't say much. I didn't have much to say. All I could really say was like, this doesn't seem right to me. I don't know why. Uh, I don't really see how this works out in God's favor. Maybe we should think about it more. By the time I sat down, there was like 10 other people standing up to say, you know what? I was kind of feeling like that too. Because that's usually what happens. When we make a wrong decision, there's usually about 20 people around you who know you're making a wrong decision, probably should have said something, but thought I don't want to be rude. 
I've had so many people who have fallen away from the Lord, and then me and my friends all got together and said, yeah, right about then, yeah, something started going wrong. And I just would stand back and, what were we doing? Why not go out there and be a fool for God and say, this doesn't seem right. This, it seems like this is not good for you spiritually. I don't know if this is the right decision for you. It's none of my business. It's your choice. But as your brother, as, as someone with a conscience, I just have to say, make sure you've prayed about this. It can change things in a church when we take responsibility for each other. It can change things in a church when we recognize there will always be flesh and spirit in here, but we can choose to stand up for the spirit when he's typing on our conscience. But we can choose to stand up and say, this is going to be a place where we fulfill the ministry of Christ, where we love and serve the Lord. Not, not get in the churchy games. that They're not evil. They're just a waste of time. They're just a waste of time when there are people out there dying. Like that poor girl in that story that need that little picture to shine out. That needs somebody that looks like Jesus to come up to him and say, your past doesn't matter. God loves you. You can start again. Just come on home. I feel like God's saying that the fields are white in Arnold. There are opportunities galore. There are people in your families that God wants to reach out and pull back from the edge. But we have to be about the mission that God has us on. And it doesn't happen unless the good men in this church stand up and the time is right when they feel the, the spirit calling and say, wait a minute, where's the fruit in this? Should we be investing our time here or should we be looking for something else to do that works a little better? We have to be willing to redream the dream until we start getting the fruit that Jesus promised, until we get a hold of God's heart. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I'm not purporting any particular direction. I'm just saying that I know that the Spirit of God is in this place and I know that He's leading you. The question is, do we have the courage to follow that lead? I don't know how much time I got. Am I running out of time? I'm way over. Okay, I'm going to tell one story real quick. When I was in Africa, this was a year ago maybe, um, you see crazy things all the time. People dying. Um, just kids in terrible situations that you can't do anything about. Um, and one day I saw a kid, 14 years old, getting whipped, just getting beaten. And he was a thief. He had stolen something. He broke into somebody's house. He stole something. And a group of Christians had decided that this was the correct way to punish him. So they wrote the word for thief across his head in a sharpie, I think it was, it was in French, but it was a word for thief, and then they beat him. And I was there. I walked out and I saw it. And there was this thing inside of me in my conscience that said, get out there, get in front of, the, get in between that kid and that guy's belt that he's whipping him with, you know, get in there and stop that guy from kicking him, get in there and do something. But I froze. To my shame, I didn't do anything. I had this moment of, it always happens, you have this moment of doubt and you go, is this what God really wants me to do or not? And it just buys a moment of hesitation that turns into a minute of procrastination and then the opportunity slips away. It only lasted a couple of minutes and then there's this kid on the ground weeping, ashamed, he's been mocked, and beaten, and everybody, even after they hit him, they kind of like walk away. 
I think a couple of people threw him a handshake while he's weeping on the ground and then walked away. The only thing I did that was even slightly redemptive in that situation is I walked over to him and I put him in a big bear hug and I just cried with him because I didn't know what to do. And most of that was just shame on my part. And in that moment, I looked at God because it's not the first time I wimped out. It's not, I know, every, all of us wimp out. We have times when we know the right thing to do, we don't do it. But at that moment, I really owned what that was. And I looked at myself and said, that was cowardice. That was cowardice. And I said, that's never going to happen to me again. Not because I'm some well of courage, but because Jesus is a well of courage that I could have turned to in that moment, but I didn't. And so I started to pray for it in my life. Pray that I would be a man that would have the courage to do the right thing, no matter what it means socially. And so that would be my prayer for you guys. I'm going to lead us in prayer right now. That would be my prayer for you guys too. We all have a little bit of a coward in there somewhere. We all have moments we regret ultimately because our courage failed us. And so my prayer is just that God would pour out a spirit of courage on this community. I don't know what God's touching on me about, but as you go into these defining decisions, whatever they are, that you would be filled with courage and confidence in the guidance of God that he has given to you. And that this church would go out and do amazing things. I know you guys are already doing stuff. But I'm saying that, that the sky's the limit. That you would just get on fire. The fires would be stoked. That you fan into flame the gifts that God has given you. And that you would find that place where you just hit that sweet spot in ministry. It's the greatest thing in the world. It's the hardest thing to get, but it's the greatest thing in the world.